Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to another edition of Folk U Radio. Folk University is a practice in slow learning and asking your neighbors, what do you know? And in telling them what you care about. We have a really fun show today with a guest host joining us and a guest and then later a live show. So everything is happening today. First, uh, my name is Amanda O'Fox Gillespie and I'm your usual boring host, but we also have with us... Hi, my name is Rowan, and I'm a student at the Cortez Island Academy, and I'm also one of Amanda's many homeschool, no, homestay kids. Yeah. So we are, we have a special, special, special day where we're going to practice just being together, and Rex Weiler is going to talk to us a little bit about his background and history with journalism and truth-telling and some of the things that he did with the students this year as part of the Tools for Truth-Telling podcasting course at the Cortez Island Academy. But before we get going, I want to ask you to take one moment to think about all those people that came before and the place that you call home, the people that have cared for, walked, and loved the land, the air, the ocean, the water, of the place that you now call home. Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Kaluhus, the Kalaaman, and the Hamako peoples. A special thank you to all these people and those through time who've cared and loved this place that we now get to call home. Thank you. All right, welcome to the studio, Rex. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Amanda, always. Sometimes he just accidentally um, says yes to when I when I beg him to come. And oh, I forgot to introduce we ha- we have a special guest in the studio today as well, uh, which we may hear occasionally from, uh, but maybe not too much. Can you want to introduce your special other special guest? Well, Sita Sita come came. Uh, uh, my my dog Sita, our dog Sita, who's a, who's a four legged special guest. She likes to go on any outings. All right. So, what is our topic today? What is so? What I've promised our topic was uh, to those who read uh, the tideline um, was a little bit of a talk about truth telling uh, in today's day and age, which is a big topic. In fact, so big that Rex came in to share uh, about it in like four different episodes for the Cortez Island Academy. So, I thought today we could start to touch in on this big topic with just a little bit about your background uh, as a journalist and how you got involved in journalism. Well, in in university, I was a science student, but 
I would I wrote for the university newspaper just out of interest. But my first real job, and I liked it. I enjoyed uh, doing reporting and writing stories. My first real job in journalism was in Vancouver in the 1970s. I worked uh, at the North Shore News as a as a reporter, journalist, photographer. So I would roam around the North Shore and find stories and take pictures and write write the stories. And I learned a lot doing that. But I will say that in that era, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, it was assumed and presumed if you were a journalist, you had signed on to a dedication to truth-telling, to honesty and accuracy. And there was fairly serious editing in those days of what we call now fact-checking. Um, and it was assumed that a journalist's job included being accurate. Very similar, and I always thought of it similarly as a scientist, which I had also been. Actually worked in the aerospace industry, had been in science. and But it's also similar to a detective. So a scientist, a detective, and a journalist, I always thought of those three professions as observing the world and honestly reporting what you find. Now, of course, we know that detectives can be corrupted and scientists can be corrupted, and we certainly know journalists can be corrupted, but it was assumed that journalism was a truth-telling profession. It's sad today that we cannot assume that. In fact, you know, the term post-truth uh, has circulated around the world today, we see, appear to be in a post-truth era. And, and part of that is because there really is no uh, serious fact-checking for 90% of the stuff, really, that, that most people in the Western world are reading these days because people are reading tweets and Facebook postings and just things that people post and blogs and stuff that have no editorial supervision whatsoever. So there's no peer review, as we say in science, uh, or um, adjudication of the truth, as we say in law and detective work, or fact-checking, as we say and used to say in, in journalism. So what that has done, is, as I've observed it, is that Journalism has tended really to toward really marketing and promotion. That most stories you read these days uh, are pitching a position, pitching an idea. Now, we've always had advocacy journalism, but even in advocacy journalism... Of which I have done a lot. I've written stories about things that I care about environmental, ecological stories, human rights. <coughs> but even in advocacy journalism, there was a presumption that you got your facts right. And quite frankly, I adhere to that to this day. I, I just don't see the sense in 
attempting or being a journalist and not keeping that commitment to getting your facts right. Otherwise, you're just a PR person. You're just promoting an idea or an ideology, an opinion. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with having opinions. We all have opinions. But um, journalism, as it's practiced today in so many media, is just so biased that you feel like when you're hearing something, you're either hearing right-wing journalism or left-wing journalism or progressive journalism or uh, woke journalism or reactionary journalism. So really most of journalism that people are hearing now online is, is opinionated. It's biased. It's ideological. And uh, this is deathly, I really think, to the general intelligence. In other words, in the, in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, when there was this great promise of the World Wide Web, of the Internet, and we were all told, I remember in the 90s, people saying, oh, there's going to be this great information explosion. The hope was that this would help democratize knowledge in the world. But it appears to me that the great information explosion turned out to really just be a bickering fest among everybody who's got an opinion. And what you see most most often, what I see most often in, in certainly social media, is bickering. That's not right. You're, that's not right. My saying is right. You're wrong. I'm right. Um, and always people are arguing always from the same ideology, from the same position. You know? And if, if you say something that, that someone doesn't like from their ideological point of view, then then nothing you say will be taken seriously by, by such a person. And um, this is a shame. I mean, I still read a, a, most of what I read. I, I do a lot of research all the time, and I'm reading scientific papers, and I'm reading in-depth journalism and in-depth reporting and, and so forth all the time. And, and I find, I can still find responsible, truth-telling, uh, commitment to digging into facts and trying to understand the world as it is rather than trying to shape the world to an ideology. And, you know, a, a mentor of mine, Gregory Bateson, once said that um, purpose distorts perception. That when we have an ideology that we're trying to sell, or when we have a position that we're trying to sell, it distorts our perception because we just start seeing the things that confirm our, our ideology, our position. And we see this all the time. People say they did research, they researched this particular topic, but the way pe- sometimes people do research is they just dig around until they find an article or a paper that supports the opinion they have. But that's not really research. That's, that's confirmation bias. That's just confirming your, your existing bias. So if you really do the research, you also have to read the opinions that are different from your ideology and from your point of view. And most people I see today, uh, my experience today, most people don't do that. But there still are really good researchers, really good writers and journalists, really good investigators and scientists 
who do adhere to this idea of truth. So um, that still exists, but we're also awash in bias and opinion and ideologies. I want to uh, bring Rowan in, um, who who is our student and is going is supposed to be the guest host, but might also have to also be our representative of of students now. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, wh- so, one of the things I wanted to ask Rowan because Rowan's been was able to be in class with you uh, a few times, and there were a couple things from your biography that really stood out to me Uh, probably three things that really stood out to me in your biography but I'm uh, realizing that I might be putting Rowan on the spot Um, I'm wondering Rowan if there was anything that stood out to you that you remember from uh, Rex's stories about kind of his early journalism years or that you sort of wish that you could know about what formed you know the mind of of an early journalist uh, like Rex Weiler that you wish you could ask uh, if you could have gotten you know your hand called upon in class and now you're on the spot so well I definitely got called upon a lot since I was always asking questions and always had my hand raised and I definitely remember a lot of Rex's stories as they are all very interesting with the FBI and some car and place. Um, But I really would like to know, Rex, how is it like starting uh, to be a journalist so far back? Not calling you old, I'm sorry. Not that far back. (laughs) Not that far back. back. (laughs) And having this kind of everybody's looking for the truth and now doing going into journalism and making it so then you have these two sides competing for I'm right and they're completely wrong. Well, first of all, relatively, I am old and I'm not offended by that. And again, truth-telling, accept who we are, accept who you are at any moment in your life because that's the easiest path. That's my opinion. Um, the first emotion that springs up when you ask me that question, what was it like in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s versus today regarding journalism? I'm just disappointed. I'm really saddened and disappointed that this great information explosion that we were, it was seemed so promising to further democratize knowledge and information, which, by the way, also happened in the 16th century and 17th century with the printing press, which really helped democratize knowledge and information in a similar way. Um, But the modern version makes it so easy for people to have a voice, public voice, um, that that there's there's no real restriction uh, based on quality of information or accuracy and truth-telling. And to me, it's kind of heartbreaking on the one hand, but then when I think about it, not particularly surprising, because, of course, if everybody in the world gets to have a voice and say what they want, one would be naive to think that you were going to have more refined thinking or intelligence. You just can have people saying whatever they want. And then the fact that it ends up being a kind of a, a bickering festival 
is disappointing. But again, kind of understandable. It's the way people are. You hear somebody say something and you disagree and you want to respond to them. And not everybody is trained in research and digging down the facts. And people have opinions and they don't want to be silenced just because they're not an expert researcher and they have their opinion, they want to speak their opinion, and that's understandable. But I'm I'm disappointed in in the evolution of journalism. I, I find my the profession I have now is not well respected. But when I went into journalism in the seventies, a journalist was a respected position. A, a journalist was somebody who had a code of ethics and was respected in the community. Today, these days, you say you're a journalist, people don't trust you right from the get-go. So, do you have any hope at all that we might go through another information-gathering couple of years? And do you have any ideas how we might be able to get to common ground with the all the many sides coming together and at least doing friendly debates? Yeah, friendly and respectful debates. Um, you know, I've even found, I was in a dialogue online, actually with a group of scientists recently, and one one particular scientist that we were talking to, somebody, you know, who's a serious researcher, and just got so personal and kind of angry and, and mean-spirited about the debate, it just kind of ruined it for for me and for a lot of others. So do I have any hope that that we can overcome this? Only on an individual level in a sense that, you know, you can be a committed, deep researcher who cares about facts and truth. I can be, we we can do our best, and we can encourage that. But... Is there any hope that that the mass of humanity, eight billion people, are are all going to be committed to the truth versus being committed to their emotional biases and and feelings and ideology? No, not likely, not likely, because it's a lot of work to say something true. I, I've written a lot of stories that involve deep research about environmental issues, corporate things that, that corporations have done that to me are violations of human rights and, and environmental uh, rights. And governments, I've, I've done research into governments, which you've, you referred earlier to my clashes with the FBI, um, which has led to clashes for me with authorities of one kind or another. But I always felt that I had the truth at my back. And then if I did make mistakes, I have made mistakes, made mistakes in print, but make a mistake, you go back, you correct a mistake. That's that's what science does. That's what a detective does. That's what a good journalist does. So making a mistake's not the not the issue, but clinging to your mistakes, doubling down on your mistakes, that's what we have going on now in the, in, in the world today. But I mean, hope is a nice frame of mind, Rowan, but to me, hope isn't a strategy. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not counting on hope to get us through. Um, 
my strategy as far as that goes is to keep being the journalist I've always been, keep doing stories that I I can uh, feel confident to put my name on and, and speak the truth. And, you know, I've never been sued for libel or slander because I've never libeled anybody. I've never slandered anybody. I don't tell lies. I don't tell lies in, in, in public and print and, and print something uh, just to make a, 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 a position or opinion or to support some ideology. But um, so I'm, I'm confident. And I've often said, I mean, I've been threatened by various powerful organizations and groups and corporations and so forth, you know, sort of subtly threatened. And my opinion, my approach has always been, yeah, come after me, go ahead, fact check me. If you find something I said that was wrong, fine, well, I can change that, but I'm not going to change my, my approach to journalism. And um, so I think, and that's actually a very comforting thing as a, as a journalist and even as a human being to have honesty and facts behind who you are as a person and certainly who you are as a communicator and as a journalist. There's this quote that I once heard that um, that I love, and it's sort of what kind of summarizes what you just said, and I wish that I could remember the quote exactly, but it's basically like in this time of half-truths uh, where... Um, you know, where, where there's so much half-truth and misinformation around that if you want to find truth, you must love truth. You must pursue passionately with a love truth. And it's by the mathematician Pascal who said this, which is what, like 14th century or something? So we're hundreds of years ago. And the reason I liked it is that I think we think everything is so unique. Like, oh, this we're so unique that we're just surrounded by half-truth. Because, I mean, that's what the worst misinformation is, right? Is that we stop, we found a little nugget of fact, and then we add a bunch of stuff to it that is not fact, and then it becomes far more damaging than had we not uncovered that fact. But we're not, it isn't new. Um, that maybe the, the volume is turned up now, but... It, there's some comfort to me that it isn't new. And it goes back to this thing that you're hinting about, which is how do we teach or transfer or mentor into people a, a deep love, a passionate quest for truth? Um, and I feel like we translate that to research, like, you know, when Rex came in, he talked a lot about the importance of research, and I talked about research, but research does not seem, like, compelling in that same way, um, to, you know, as, like, love truth and find it. So I'm just wondering, do you have strategies? Are, are there things that you see? How did that spark ignite in you? Um, yeah, just love your advice. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very interesting quote from uh, Pascal uh, uh, regarding the search for truth and the love for truth. You have to have it. Certainly, and mathematics is actually a great endeavor, a great science uh, for people. Um, if you have any interest in mathematics at all, even if it's not a career thing, it's worth pursuing because mathematics trains truth. Mathematics is completely unforgiving uh, of bias. 
mathematics doesn't care what your opinion is, what your bias is. And um, I mean, look at look at what an accountant does. You know, accountant doesn't have to do complex mathematics. Accountant does adding and subtracting, multiplying and dividing. But the job of an accountant is to be 100% accurate, not 99% accurate, 100% accurate. So mathematics is a great training ground for seeking the truth. And, um, of course, as, in, as a science student, I, I did a lot of math, and I still to this day do a lot of math because I end up trying to figure stuff out in, in, when I'm writing environmental issues or ecological issues and trying to dig down and find out if what people are saying is true, and I have to end up doing a lot of math and a lot of calculation. And um, so anyway, I think that's a great discipline. Math is a great discipline for learning that. Um, I play a game, a Chinese game uh, called Go, which is played with stones on a board. And it gets very, very complex, Um, like chess somewhat similar, but very different also from chess. But there's a number of 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 proverbs in in go in the game of go and one of them is that go is the search for the truth that with each play you make each move you make you've read out the situation as absolutely as best you can and you you're you're not playing with wishful thinking but uh hoping Again, there's there's our word hope, but in, in the game of Go, you're not hoping that what you're doing is going to work out. You've thought it through, right? So the um, a commitment to the to the truth. So mathematics, uh, games, um, and the falling in love with truth. I I don't know. You know, I don't know how we fall in love, but it happens. And I here's one of here's one of the things that that keeps me interested in journalism has always kept me interested in journalism. And why I love what I'm calling research is I just love to learn stuff, and I love to find out stuff and sort of get to the bottom of stuff, even things that don't necessarily have a bottom, even things you can't necessarily determined 100% accuracy, this is the way it is, the way it is not. And I've always found in doing deep research on any topic, if, I do, if, I, if I'm stuck on what to say or what to write about, I just keep doing the research until I come upon, and I always come upon something, some little nugget of information or truth that just blows my mind that that essentially I fall in love with that oh my god like really is did I just figure that out or did I just learn that wow I'm really glad I know that piece of information and now I can share it with my readers because because I've had that experience of figuring that out and then oftentimes I've had people write back to me who've read something that that, that I've written and said, wow, you know, like, that's amazing. That, and I said, oh, yeah, I know it's amazing. That's why I wrote about it. And I, and I discovered it because I put in the time and, and, did, and did the work to dig down. 
And maybe that's a luxury of being a journalist or being a detective or being a scientist. I, you know, I, I, I admire scientists and I love people who really spend their whole lives dedicated to digging in and figuring things out. And in the scientific world, we have what we call peer review. Now, true enough, peer review can be corrupted and is. And now, I mean, there's terrible things going on in some universities that are being funded by corporate interests. And so research is being pushed in certain directions and not in others. And, um, you know, economics is a perfect example. I mean, this whole so-called science of economics is not science. It's, it's ideology. And so all of the research is biased by the ideology of, of really neo-European modern economics. And so this is why modern economics has missed all these ecological signposts that say, oops, you're going in the wrong direction because economics has been able to create this illusion that it's a science when in fact it's an ideology. And so it missed the fact that you cannot just disregard what is called, are called externalities in economics. Well, we don't have to worry about what's happening to the environment because it'll restore itself, and there's always substitutes if we use something up, and you know we can cut the forest down, clear-cut the forest, and so forth, because we can grow new trees. And, and so economics has kind of been one of those um, modern human realms in which delusion and bias has led us down a path that has helped us destroy the earth, destroy the eco-integrity, ecological integrity of the earth, because it was not committed to truth. It was committed to its ideology. And that is so dangerous. So economics is a fake science. And of course, there, there have been ecological economists, Herman Daly, was one of the early ecological economists who went, well, whoa, wait a minute. We, we can't account for human activity and not account for the inputs from nature and the outputs, the waste. So now here we are in the world today, and we're dealing with, for example, climate change. What's, what's the climate change issue? It's a waste issue. Uh, CO2 is our waste product that we have not accounted for. And now guess what? It's added up. And it's like if you tried to run your household and you didn't pay any attention to the rotting wood or the, all the things that can happen to a, to a home, and you just party on, party on, party on, and, and things are crumbling down around you. Um, so that's what's happening to you know, our civilization at large. And it's happened to many civilizations. It happens to most civilizations over time is, is people get too comfortable and stop paying attention to these, these deeper truths. Uh, and this comes back to why truth is so important. Our instinct for truth exists because it has survival value. You know, being, being deluded has comfort maybe and feels good, but seeking the truth has survival value. I like I just like that quote seeking the truth has survival value um maybe in both cases I I want to so 
You're listening to Folk You Radio, and we have on today Rex Weiler, and he's talking about journalism and this uh, search for truth. Uh, and we are joined by one of the CIA students, Rowan, who is here uh, with us, both to be guest uh, host, but then occasionally to be put on the spot where we make her represent her entire generation. No pressure, Rowan. Um, And we've just finished up uh, a section of the Cortez Island Academy that was focused on tools for truth-telling and uh, and journalism. All the students had to create a couple podcasts. And one of... You know, it was very interesting for me working with the younger generation um, to see the because they've grown up, they've be, they've been raised in this time of of the internet and social media and all the background noise, and I feel like going in, I had this real sort of, um, and maybe I still feel like it uh, that there is a bit of. Um, um, uh, a bit of maybe a lack of that lust for truth with students. Um, and so I was wondering, Rowan, <laughs> if you feel what you feel in your uh, your generation and whether you feel that this sort of idea of really getting to the bottom of things and what's really behind them is a driving force uh, in you. And in those people that you see around you, and I know that I'm asking you to to represent a lot, but I, I'm wondering what you feel. Um, so from my experience with kids my age, there is lots of sheep. There's uniqueness and stuff in how like people dress or explain or express themselves, but the second it gets hard, or it gets tough, or it's a touchy subject the division comes straight down there's the sides there's the your mom's ugly and your hair is weird and everything can come out from why they don't like your side um and we don't have a lot of people like rex who isn't afraid to express their opinions and don't do it in a harsh way but are themselves and just themselves and the truth right and I think truth for people my age really goes into self-expression and how they dress, but they don't really, like, it's the hard work. My One of my teachers and I always talked about with climate change that people are selfish. We're inherently selfish. Everybody here has done something at least a little selfish today. So why aren't we going to go and not solve because it's too late for that but why aren't we going to go and try and stop or slow down climate change and it's because we're lazy it's kind of a bit of a fight between our selfishness and our laziness and I think that applies for the truth as well and then once you get an idea then it's very hard to let go of the idea of truth that you now hold and listen to somebody else's opinion because we're raised to just believe in what we believe in and not listen to anybody else. So Rex, I'm curious about whether what you think about that and also uh, like have, about the quality of education and sort of what it, it is that um, 
sparks this, um, uh, I guess, tools. I mean, we just did a session, tools for truth telling. There are actually learnable tools that help with this. Did you have, like, were you taught those? And what was your impression? You work with young people all the time. Um, How do you think they're they're navigating that? Um, And... Uh, oh, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna have a uh, one second. So um, the this this is a long winded question. So uh, Rex is gonna go get a sip of water, and then I get to make my question uh, a little bit shorter. But we are doing um, we have Rex Weiler in, and we are talking about tools for truth telling and the history, his history at least, of journalism uh, and how it's come about. We're gonna have a moment of, oh, we don't even have to have music. Oh, amazing. There, there's, this is a no frills radio show. We didn't even give him a glass of water. The, the, the musicians are arriving, so we're gonna have some live music here in a minute. But I just wanna to respond to what Rowan was bringing up. Um, regarding selfishness and laziness and other traits. Uh, And I think ultimately, but what I wanted to say is that yes, these traits that we have are what we're up against. Climate change isn't the fundamental problem. First of all, the the climate change is is a symptom of a much larger ecological dysfunction of our entire human system and industrial system of consuming and consuming and consuming, reproducing, reproducing. But keep in mind, evolution taught us, nature taught us to consume and reproduce. That's what nature teaches animals how to survive and and how to get the things they need and how to reproduce. But nature doesn't tell us when to stop. So the fact that we've overshot the capacity of the earth to give us everything we want and to process our waste, um, it's not really because we're inherently evil. It's because that's the way nature is. Most animals, if they're really successful animals, overshoot their habitats. You know, wolves in a watershed will overshoot the, the, the deer or the rabbits or whatever they're eating in, the, in that watershed, and then they'll die back. And then the rabbits will return, and then the, and then the, the wolves will die back until there's, there's fewer wolves and more rabbits, and then the wolves will grow up again, and then they'll overshoot their habitat. So that part is natural. But responding to that intelligently rather than just dying back and then recovering and dying back which is the way most of the world works. Having an intelligent response, that's something that we have to engender, again, from our own intelligence. Nature hasn't taught us how to be wise in that that sense. So a lot of these emotions that we feel to consume and to be selfish, for example, well, that has survival value too. That's why we have that emotion. Nature has taught us, evolution has taught us to take care of ourselves. So, yeah, if there's food there to eat, I'm going to get it for myself and for my family and then maybe for my friends and my community. Um, 
But nature also teaches us compassion. We have compassion for each other. We care about each other. We see somebody who's hurting, who's sad, who doesn't have enough to eat. We want to help them too. And that's a natural feeling. Um, so we have these kind of competing natural feelings. And by the way, nature taught us to be compassionate because that has survival value. That helps the whole living community if things care about other things. And, I mean, we even see, you know, we, you, you've probably seen pictures and maybe videos of animals taking care of other animals from a different species or people taking care of other animals or just how you feel when you see a baby, any animal, you know, nature makes babies cute, you know, for good reason, and we care about them. And so we have those feelings of love and compassion, and the fact that we can care about the suffering of people around the world, that, that's evidence that we are connected very deeply. Um, so we kind of have these competing instincts that are just natural, and I think people, you know, people who we say, oh, that person is selfish, well, yeah, maybe they've let their selfishness take over their personality a bit, you know. But their selfishness isn't because they're uniquely wicked or evil. Um, so part of solving climate change or any other issue we face is is facing these larger issues about ourselves and who we are and how we got here and, and then being honest about it. I have some very good friends uh, who are ecologists who work in this field and I've learned a lot from people like this, but pe people who have studied human evolution over time and human emotions and what drives people and, and what circumstances have allowed people to be wise and careful about their consumption and taking care of the earth around them and what has driven people to not be careful about those things and then collapse. Uh, and uh, I have some, you know, including I have friends who've done work on the whole collapse of civilizations over history, over time. Fascinating subject. And so why, why do civilizations collapse? Why don't the people like notice, you know, that they've cut down all their forests and the, and that their so they've depleted their soils and that their their harvests are going down and then do something about it? And part of the reason is because we're fighting these emotions, Rowan, that uh, nature has given us. Um, now, laziness that's that's a trickier one because, but in a way, the body. When we actually are relaxed, when we actually get to relax and sit in the bath or we're reading a book or we're home and we've done our day's work and there's no demands on us and we just get to do something we like to do and we play the piano or read a book or play with our kids or play with each other or go out and play with our friends or whatever and we're relaxed, our body just craves that and loves that. And there are signals that our body gives us dopamine <laughs> we get that dopamine hit that we're okay we're safe and our body wants that feeling so laziness what we call laziness might be just associated with uh, an exaggeration of that need to feel 
quiet and relaxed and okay and not have another burden to solve all the time. And um, this also, by the way, leads to drug use and alcohol use and addictions <laughs> in order to break that, that cycle. So yeah, it gets very complicated. One of the uh, things that came up often in our class um, with the students uh, who I would say are more tuned on, tuned in, was how difficult it is to be a young person uh, coming into consciousness at a time of climate collapse and how this this constant sort of news, you know, understanding the more awake you are to the reality of what's going on, the perhaps more desperate and helpless uh, you feel. And I think that really pervaded a lot of the 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 thinking, particularly the thinking around journalism and truth that these students had. It's sort of like, well, if I'm awake to truth and the more awake I am to 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 that seeking of the truth and the more I have to wake up to the fact that we are living the time of our own demise. Um, and which is pretty intense, right? It's an intense thing. You start to understand. I, start, I felt more compassionate about why students perhaps weren't seeking out a deeper desire for, for a truth. Um, and then it really struck me when you came in, Rex, and you talked about the founding of Greenpeace and, and you as a journalist and the other journalists and that, and that moment um, of taking knowledge and research and understanding and turning it into this sort of hopeful protest. I was wondering if you could share with us on the radio a little bit about that founding and if you think there are things that we can learn now um, that, you know, to live out hope based on, on the story of how Greenpeace came about. Hmm. Well, I and most in my generation grew up in absolute terror of nuclear annihilation. That's, that was our terror. And I literally, I had moments in my childhood when I was so afraid that this was going to happen and that we were all going to be blown up and there was going to be these massive fireballs and because I had heard about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and oh my God, and that really happened and now all, you know, and then, and so as, as a young child, you know, eight, nine, ten, grade school child, this just engendered tremendous fear. And then later, as a teenager and uh, as a university student and so forth, that was, our, that was the thing that we wanted to solve. We wanted to solve this potential nuclear holocaust, which morphed into us looking around. And at that time, there was a civil rights movement, very strong civil rights movement. There was very strong women's movement. And there was this powerful peace movement. But, what, but we were looking around and we realized, even if we solved all that, even if we had gender equality, racial equality, and we solved the peace issue, we're still destroying the earth. The rivers are getting poisoned. I remember when, the, when the, a river in Ohio, the Cuyahoga River, caught on fire. And there was this picture in the newspaper, and I think I saw this picture in 1969. 
in the newspaper the river on fire. And I remember when I saw this picture of the river on fire, I just thought, how does a river burn? Well, of course, we know the answer because it's polluted with flammable toxins and poisons. But this image of the river burning seared into my brain and... And now, and and by the way, in the meantime, I had read Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. I thought, oh my God, we're poisoning the whole world. So even if we solve our social justice issues, and even if we solve our military and peace issues, we're still poisoning the world, and the rivers are burning. And to me, when the river was burning, that seemed too mythical, too like biblical, mythical, that's a sign for humanity. And I thought, surely when we communicate the ecological, we need to communicate the ecological crisis. That's why Greenpeace came to be, because it's not just about war and, and human rights and human common decency. It's also about us expanding that compassion and caring to the whole world, to the whole earth and all other creatures. And so we felt that we needed a, an ecology movement that was as robust as the human rights movements and the peace movement. And so that's why we started Greenpeace. But here we are, you know, 50 years later. I can't say we've solved the problem. We haven't solved the problem of militarism either, and we have not solved human human rights, in equality, uh, and common decency. So, uh, sure, of course, there's there's hope, and people can do new things and 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 come up with new approaches. And I, by the way, if people are just desperate and don't have time to do the deep research and just are screaming over the internet, I don't blame them. You know, and I, mean, I love some of the some of the things that uh, Greta Thunberg has has said. Um, you know, this is a crisis. Let's deal with this as a crisis. Not blah 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 blah. Go to these these stupid climate meetings every year, uh, and just talk 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 talk. And action action. Come on, there's a crisis. There's a crisis. And then Extinction Rebellion and some of these other groups that have have emerged. Um, and a lot of the old environmental groups have almost become irrelevant because because they just they're just still thinking in the in the, in the wrong way. Um, but of course, there's hope, and I think that um, you know, getting getting people to work together to do anything, <laughs> even in a small group, even in our families. Uh, and in our communities, it's a very difficult thing. So all I would say is that's a lot of work too. Research is a lot of work. Committing to the truth is a lot of work. Organizing anyone to do anything is a lot of work. And in fact, pretty much anything that's worth doing is a lot of work. So if, if anyone's afraid of a lot of work, you're just not going to accomplish much because all, everything that's worth doing is a lot of work. And again, that it's almost like, falling in love with work, falling in love with doing good, doing work, to sit down and do the work. You want to be a writer? It's work. You want to be an artist? It's work. You want to be a musician? Get your music out? 
it's work. It's a lot of hard work. And that's something that, every, that I think people just have to learn is that um, none of these things are, are, are easy. So you just have to dedicate the, th- dedicate the time. So Rex, you were talking about Greta. And I have a memory from grade eight where one of my friends and I were talking in class about her and about how, like, oh my gosh, like, she's amazing, kind of fangirling her a little bit. And a couple kids in our class heard us, and they were totally against her. And they were using the R slur about her and lots of really horrible things and said that she's absolutely useless and we don't need to worry about climate change. We need to worry about money. And money is our only problem. And climate they didn't say climate change is fake, but how do you think or how do you propose that people my age and younger go off into the world having these other people who don't believe in the crisis but still trying to do what we believe is right? Um, it's like I said, it's, it's a lot of work. It's hard. But on the one hand, patience. You have to be patient with people. Uh, not everybody is going to be as far along as you are in observing the world and the problems of the world. And so you have to be patient with people, but then you also have to know when to stop being patient and put the pressure on. And it's like with your friends, you or, or not necessarily your friends, but the other kids in school who are dissing you uh, because you're, you know, you, they they think you're you're all wrong. And you're focusing on the wrong problem. This itself is a mistake that people make all the time, at the community level, at the family level, at the relationship level, and at the world level. They say that's not the problem. This is the problem. As if there's only one problem in the world. Are you kidding me? Everything we face, every situation we face is horribly complex. And the world is horribly complex. And the problems we face are complex. And yeah, the way our system is set up, if you don't have money, if you don't have a way of making a living and you don't have a way of making money, um, you are, that's a problem. So it's not that that isn't a problem. The mistake is thinking there's only one problem. <laughs> so, yes, climate change is a problem. I mean, I know a lot of people that get upset about with, with a lot of climate activists because they say, well, climate's not the problem. Climate's a symptom of the problem. We've got a deeper problem. We've overshot the capacity of the earth. Overshoot is the problem. And yada, yada, I mean... I would encourage people to avoid that huge mistake of saying that I've identified the one single problem. Because the fact is, there's always this vast system that has problems and challenges. And the human system right now has a lot of problems and challenges. And how do you deal with people who just put you down and dismiss you and 
uh, treat you unkindly and and mock you for caring about something. <sighs> I'm sorry to say this, Rowan, but I don't think there's no solution to that. It's just part of people want to feel comfortable and safe in their own way of seeing things. And, and when they hear you talking about something that's outside of their realm of understanding, they just want to dismiss you and put you down. And it's for their own comfort for them, for them feeling they don't, if I had to think about that, I'd go crazy. So I'm not going to think about it. And I'm going to put you down and mock you for thinking about it and reminding me that it's a problem. So, Again, I suppose that's human nature and, and and you know, you can't you can't bend everybody to your to your point of view. And also it's good to take critique. Um and you know, the a lot of climate activists have said things and say things. Again, climate activism becomes an ideology. And then people people are saying things and taking points of view and positions that become an ideology rather than actually digging into the truth. And so we have to be careful about that. And that happens in all social movements. So when we care about something and we create a social movement about it, be careful about the ideologies that emerge around that. I mean, look what happened to communism in Russia and China. The, the idea of sharing the fruits of, of industrial production among everybody and sharing it fairly was a really good idea. But look what, look what happened when that became an ideology and people had to somehow interpret that good idea through large-scale governments and bureaucracies. It became just as big a nightmare as capitalist industrialism. So I would just like to quickly remind everybody that... If you hear any whining or the door opening, it is just Rex's delightful but slightly rest, restless dog. There is no trap children or anything. We <laughs> <laughs> promise. Yes, we promise. Um, Manda, do you have anything to say? Any questions? I always have questions for you. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so the second part of my story from eighth grade about Greta was that while my teacher was overhearing this because it was in class, she told us that it was a useless conversation and that we had to go back to our work and that we should just move on and we shouldn't be talking about this. So how do you think that the school system could be better at helping talk about the truth or helping people decide and strive to learn the truth? Yeah, well, that's a big question, Rowan, because the school system is itself a huge, giant bureaucracy, which is um, troubled and slowed down and often made dysfunctional by, again, ideologies. People have a certain way of thinking and believing. And it's a little bit unwieldy, like uh, for for teachers to, to have to face a room of 30 or 40 students and try and actually transmit some learning or wisdom or education because if you have 30 or 40 students you have 30 or 40 different ways of learning and ways of seeing and ways of putting information together and levels of information that people are able to absorb <coughs> so you know uh 
I've done some teaching in school rooms, but I mean, I prefer small groups of students and one-on-one or something where you can actually figure out what it is that somebody needs to learn and, and, and help help people as individuals. It's really very difficult. So this, the education system itself has an inherent um, problem and difficulty, which is you can't teach masses of people all the same. It's impossible because people are so different and students are so different. I even find when I have four or five students, it starts to get tricky because some students understand certain things right away other students understand other things right away some students need things to be slowed down or a different way some people some students don't read as well some students need visual you know so you really have to so to me real education is what happens between individuals between human beings in small groups and that's one reason i love uh the cortez academy is because I think the Cortez Academy is at least trying to experiment with a way of teaching uh, that honors a little bit more this fact of life, which is people learn differently and at different rates and, and have interest in different things. The fact is, and, uh, so, and the, school, the school teachers and the administrations and so forth feel compelled to teach you what the curriculum is, because the curriculum says, well, in grade three, you need to be able to add and subtract and divide and multiply, and in grade four, you need to be able to do this and that, and in grade six, you need to be able to do this. (coughs) And all of those things are good. Yeah, it's good to be able to do mathematics and to know history and to be able to read and be able to write and be able to express yourself. So it's all good stuff, but it's absurd to think that you that everybody's going to learn all that all at the same rate. And the best way to teach people is to help them do what they are interested in. And yeah, there are things that are worth learning that you might not be interested in. And so there's, there's a place for teaching people things that they don't even know about and, and how, how would they be interested in it? They didn't even know that was a thing. Right. So, and you know, um, but take music for example. Like, if a if a if a if a parent thinks, uh, "Oh, my ch- I want my children to know music." I mean, music is such a wonderful thing in the world, and so you know, you start forcing your child to do music lessons. What do you what you end up possibly doing potentially? Sometimes you might create a great musician, but more often you'll create somebody who just hates music because it was so hard and so disruptive, and they didn't enjoy it and they didn't understand it. I've had lots of people tell me that their their you know childhood music lessons just drove them nuts and, and they they turned away from music. So trying to force education on people is just not effective. And to try to educate people in large masses groups of people all the same and have you know have a curriculum and then on top of that it's being done by teaching education institutions that are bogged down with ideologies that may or may not be useful, much less even true. So, and then, uh, and bureaucracies are a whole nother question. And bureaucracies are not conducive to really much of anything. 
other than just maintaining some status quo. But as far as teaching wisdom and teaching at all and, and transmitting knowledge, uh, bureaucracies are terrible at that. So you end up with all these problems that aren't the result of the people not being well-intentioned and and every once in a while you come across a really good teacher and that teacher is able to, to connect with you as an individual and, and, and to figure out what you need to learn and want to learn and help you do that. And there are many of those teachers in the school system um, and there are others who haven't figured that out at all and who maybe are just kind of co- bureaucratic cogs in, in, the, in the teaching bureaucracy. I hear the musicians rumbling outside. Are we getting close to the live music? (laughs) I locked you in here for a reason, Rex, and it's not just to let you out any old time. No, we are going to wrap up this segment. Um, uh, This is your host, Manda O'Fox-Gillespie, and you've also been joined today in the host chair by... Rowan. Rowan is a student at the Cortez Island Academy, and when I am not doing Folk U or one of the six million other things on the island, uh, I am also involved with the Cortez Island Academy, and I just finished being part of a um, a segment on Tools for Truth-Telling, where we taught journalism and podcasting, and today we've had the pleasure of having Rex Weiler join us, who was also one of the local knowledge holder workshop leaders with the Cortez Island Academy. Um, this is what I'll say. I feel like right now in the world, we are in a complex time, and this sort of Seeking for truth is one of the things that I find to be really complex about where we are in the world and whether we're going to let ourselves um, really dive into that. And I will say today is an example of why it is so lovely to actually be able to stop, take the time, and be with the younger generation uh, because you're so brilliant and smart, and Rowan is, of course, exceptional and special, who is here today, but is also one of 20 exceptional special kids that I got the pleasure of spending the last five weeks with. Um, and I, they just finished their podcast um, that they each had to do. So each of the students was part of creating a feature-length journalistic podcast. And they had to do interviews, and they had to do interviews with experts and then non-traditional uh, knowledge holders in each category uh, or, you know, each thing that they're examining. And they had to do music and all these things. And quite a few of them took issues where I thought, they would be pretty black and white. You know, they would try to, you know, go on one side of an issue. And what was amazing and surprising and heartening to see was that everywhere um, a student could, they took something and they refused to stop at just right or wrong, and they broke open the issue into the many complexities and many colors that make that show a love for research and an understanding of the of a depth of learning. So um, I have a lot of hope. I have more hope uh, after actually having spent this time with the next generation than I have had uh, in many, many years. Um, and so, Rex, I thought maybe as sort of your, your, your last moments with us, you would um, 
also just share with us, you know, what you, like the positive things that you're seeing in this next generation and uh, what gives you hope? Well, as I said earlier, hope is a really good frame of mind, but it's not a strategy. And I don't, I don't base my uh, vision of the future on hoping. That's, that's one thing I will say. Um, we take action or we don't. And one thing I'll say about uh, younger people today is they, a lot of them take action. And then, but then, you know, taking action in and of itself may not be enough either. Um, it takes time to be, there's kind of a Taoist idea about action that there's kind of a, a more eternal way of seeing things that, you know, sometimes slowing, just taking action isn't in itself maybe even a good idea at times that, that you know, a sort of help, seeing the world the way it is is more important and helping helping things unfold the way they appear to, pattern they appear to want to unfold. And... um so taking action is good, but taking action alone is it, it needs it needs to be informed by the world. Um, but hopeful with the younger generation, I mean it's it's not really my place to say, but I'm in, I'm impressed. I mean I have I have three sons, three three sons who are, um, I guess my youngest son is um, is turning thirty soon, so they'll all be in their thirties. And I, and all of them are, I love the way they approach the world. They all approach the world differently, uniquely, and yet at the same time they care about people, um, they, care, they care about doing the right thing. And this is one thing I notice about many young students, and the students that are in your class, I was just blown away by, I was so impressed by all the students. They, they really care about things. And they... Um, the students felt to me like really, you know, deeply interested in in the world and in in learning and figuring things out and learning how to do new things. And um, I see that trend kind of running through this generation. I I think you know, look back over human history, thousands of generations, we come and we go, and. Um, it's not like up to one generation to save the world, for example. Uh, all you can do is do as, as well as you can. And um, so, you know, to me, it's just the evolution of culture. On we go. And those of us who are older maybe have an opportunity to um, contribute something to the younger generation. And then the younger generation is going to have to figure pretty much figure out for themselves everything that we had to figure out for ourselves. <laughs> Sorry to say. <laughs> well, Rex, on behalf of the CIA, I would very much like to thank you for coming in and spending time with us and helping us through some of our crazy ideas for podcasting. And 
meeting people such as yourself is always such a warm and welcome surprise, particularly on Cortez, because there's so many interesting and knowledgeable people on Cortez, and so many more than I could expect. And yeah, this is a wonderful community, oh, yeah. and there are a lot of people who know things. And and thank you, Manda, uh, for even pulling together the Cortez Academy, uh, because... Wow. I mean, you have pulled out lots of knowledgeable people from the community to share with uh, our younger generation. And that's, that's a, I mean, there's nothing more important in the world than that. That's just a wonderful thing that you've done. And I, I'm honored to have been invited to contribute a little bit. Well, it is a pleasure being with both of you. Thank you so much. And you, neighbor, for tuning in to another episode of Folk University. But we aren't through because after this short break, we will have the Awakeneers live in studio. So stay tuned for more here on 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio. I've been rattling around, trying to figure out how this world's put together. Why do people do what they do? What makes them the same and so different from each other? Seems our thoughts and our dreams and our schemes is what we see. Yes, our thoughts and our dreams and our schemes is what we'll be. See, we'll be different from one to another So choose how to be carefully straightened up by my dear fine brother Cause our thoughts and our dreams and our schemes is what we see Yes, our thoughts and our dreams and our schemes is what we be Asking ourselves, what are we aiming for? 
folks are better than I am Our kind of and have bigger hearts I am a work in progress man And I've met some bright human But there's nobody I would rather be than me than me No one that I'd rather be
You're listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. And we have live in the studio, definitely our biggest live concert in the studio uh, that I've been part of, the Awakeneers. And so we're just going to do our best to make great sound come from minimal equipment in a very small studio. So first we have up Promise and Crackle here live. Weak church coffee and early mornings sharing a song. Long days driving and shabby meals. But you feel so alive. And I miss the skies full of promise and crackle. Surprise of what lies around the bend. I miss the cries of all the hard work and the rabble as we scrabble on through Wyoming. We're heading home west around the crest of the mountains, waving grasslands and sketchy plants hanging on by a shoestring. California, we're dreaming of you. Legend that's been growing since our youth. Colorado, we're coming through, busking on the streets as we meet you. Oh. Sharing a song, long days driving and shabby meals, but you feel so alive. And I miss the skies full of promise and crackle, surprise of what lies around the bend. And I miss the cries of all the hard work and the rabble as we scrabble on, meeting folks you were. Never know the way life goes back home. Sweet surprises and kind souls are rising up and slipping past. Lives are part of just for a moment, one snapshot stacked upon the last. A string of bright steps winding along, all dotted trail on the map. 
sharing a song. I don't know how much I can clap in this little uh, space, <laughs> but <laughs> that sounded really good. We, I mean, I just want to say we. This is no fancy mixer here. We are just doing it. We are doing it with our feet. Uh, can we? Can you? Can we? T- say who who all's in this squeezed into this little room um erica rose emmanuel isa francis elizabeth and robert and and now we have to get the uh, microphone back in uh, in place all right and, and i believe the next song we have is on the line You're on the line, fighting for time and justice. On the line, on the line, on the line. You're on the line, fighting for time and ethics. On the line, on the line, on the line. Keep your strength and belong through. There's a thousand souls behind you. Taking on something bigger You have come You have come together Become strong together You have come You're on the line Fighting for time and justice Brothers, you are loved 
You were held by your sisters. You were held by those distant. You were held. You're on the line, fighting for time and justice. I think the only appropriate song after that one would be I Won't Give Up. What do you think? I won't give up on what I know is true I won't give up Even when I'm feeling blue I won't give up Cause life is worth a fight I won't give up Cause not giving up's what's right and bleak and I'm healing hopeless or kind of freaked I breathe slow and steady long and deep until I reach a place of calm and peace I won't give up well I've still got life in me I can still be the best I can be I won't give up One foot in front of the other I won't give up On my sisters and brothers I can reach out for a friend's help Remember this is all part of a bigger plan By grace something clicks just right I feel hope and see light This refreshed knowingness Gets me I won't give 
purpose for which I'm here I won't give up Love will overcome fear I won't give up There's far too much at stake I won't give up Even the 11th hour's not too late I trust in a higher power I'll keep my heart open like a blossoming flower Awake, relaxed, ready, and at my best I'll let truth, light, and love do the rest That was beautiful. Thank you, Erica and Rose. What beautiful voices. Um, so next we have uh, another uplifting one. These sort of make a poem if you listen to them, and it's Stand Up for Life. These are like the fastest changeovers I've ever seen between uh, between music. We want to get it all in with limited time, so there's, you know, <laughs> guitars hanging off everywhere. So Stand Up for Life. <laughs> Time to stand up, stand up, stand up for life, for life. Time to stand up, stand up, stand up for life. Time to stand up, stand up, stand up for life, for life. Time to stand up. Time to stand up, stand up, stand up for life, for life. Time to stand up, stand up, stand up for life. Weather player on the front lines, holding light in prayerful time. Just trying to live right and get by. Now is the time to
You're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, and we have live in the studio the Awakeneers. There are a lot of bodies in this small room, and particularly with these sort of more upbeat, life-affirming songs, you can feel the pulse in the studio. It is really amazing. I could probably sell seats um, to just be me in this moment. Yeah, 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 well, it would be, they'd be high-priced seats. Uh, so next we have Beauty of the West. Which is about a place on Cortex. Uh, did you hear that? I think, I think we, we sh- you should say it louder. This is about a very special place on Cortez. A place I know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I can make a pilgrimage to that land And look out across the sea to where the mountains stand When the landscape before my eyes puts bastard to shame It can be hard for me not to add drops to the rain It takes my breath away and gives it back refreshed. Oh, the beauty of the West, the beauty of life after death. Oh, a few lonely trees stand on the cock. On the ridge, telling me, don't take us for granted. And I sense many before have stood right where I stand, come to spend some time with the spirit of the mountain. Takes my breath away and gives it back refreshed. Oh, the beauty of the West, the beauty of life after death. Oh, something in the air gives me courage. my wings and soar like the eagle above me fly to the home of the brave and the land of the free oh the beauty of the west it takes my breath
gives it back Amazing. Uh, not just because it's a beautiful song, but because there were a lot of new instruments that had to come into this little space for it. Um, we have two more songs. The next one is Stuck in the Moment. And I think they d don't even need a moment. This is, it's amazing. It's amazing. The costume change, the flying out of the booth. All right, stuck in the moment. Coffee in the morning, chamomile at night. Same old thing, still just right. New leaves in spring, mushrooms in autumn. When winter comes, get out the toboggan. Stuck in the moment, all day I'm stuck in the moment, and I like it that way. Here in the moment, with all my friends, I'm stuck in the moment that never ends. Everything's fine in the morning time, and it's still okay. By the middle of the day It's alright, right through the night Tomorrow we'll wait till after today As time goes by, I smile and wave I got nowhere else to go, so I just stay shore and wash the waves I'm stuck in the moment all day I'm stuck in the moment and I like it that way here in the moment with all my friends I'm stuck in the moment that never ends Oh 
moment and I like it that way Here in the moment that never ends I'm stuck in the moment that never ends So here in this moment before we play our last song, I was hoping you could let us all know for those people out there who are like, this is not enough. I want more. How can we hear more of the Wakeneers? Very easily. We have our first indoor concert on Cortez in three years is tonight at Manson's Hall at seven o'clock. And we're really looking forward to it. There are last year there were a few tickets still available at the co-op. And there are also some available at the Friday market and hopefully some at the door as well. And what if you're far, far away and you can't make it to Cortez, but you just wish you could listen to the Wakeneers anytime? Then you're in luck. <laughs> because not only is our music on Spotify and Apple and every other corporate streaming service on the earth that we know of, it's also on our own non-corporate streaming service through our website, theawakeneers.com, sorry, awakeneers.com, and also, most excitingly, on the Awakeneers music app, which is available for pretty much any kind of smartphone. You can get all our songs along with lyrics and videos and concert announcements and a lot of other good stuff completely for free on your phone. And you're going to play us out with December in the North, is that right? Right. Never. <clears throat> yeah. Never before heard. I was going to say never before heard, but actually we did play it last weekend for the first time. Never before heard by most people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really. Yeah. White snow coming down looks so pretty all around ice cold noses and woolen toques lit up houses snow in my boots it's December in the north there's a fire in our heart Doff your jacket and your scarf Grab a cup of something hot to quench your thirst There ain't nothing on the earth Like December in the north Flying snowballs, advance and retreat Mischievous grins and rosy cheeks Inner warmth, in the outside chill Body running, but the mind stands still It's December in the north there's a fire in the heart Doff your jacket and your scarf Grab a cup of something hot to quench your thirst There ain't nothing on the earth 
like December in the north. Mighty footprints are all erased. 